I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, of course, I watched Judas and the Black Messiah, and I have complicated feelings about it, but I'm going to talk about it. Okay. So for those of you who've been listening for a while, or at least you've listened to several episodes, I'm quite sure at some point I've mentioned how much I wanted to reject my upbringing, or at least the years that I spent um, living in a predominantly white community and feeling like I was missing out on black culture, um, simply because the only access I had was my family. Um, I was one of like three black kids in my school. So because of that, I wholeheartedly, and and there were other weird things too that happened because the school knew that I was one of the few black kids and I was super, I was an exceptional Negro. So just weird things that um, they put me through as a way to help me because they knew I was an exceptional black. Um, Anyway, so... I can't even remember where I talked about that, but I've talked about it before. Anyway, so of course I went to college and I acted like I had like $3 billion or 3 million, not even billion girl, $3 million. And I just had a couple hundred grand to to blow. And I just walked into the Gucci store and I decided not only do I want to wear Gucci, but I want everybody to know that I'm wearing Gucci. So let me put on the Gucci label shirt, the Gucci label belt with the big old belt buckle, the Gucci label pants, like the Gucci logo pants, um, and the shoes with the big old Gucci logo on it. Like you need, and the scarf too, and the glasses. Why not? You need to know that I'm wearing Gucci, that I have access to this, this brand, and you're going to know it, okay? And so I kind of approached blackness like that in college. So in my spiritual life, I delved into black spirituality and began to put on black spirituality, even though I just, anyway, I began to put on black spirituality specifically. I began to put on... Um, you know, going into black studies classes and then in my own time really digging into um, black leaders. And specifically, I, of course, like I think it's a rite of passage that most black folks, but specifically me, I delved into um, the Black Panthers, of course. Um, there were other ways that I was just wearing blackness, like I had first had access to it and I needed everybody to know that I'm down and I have all of this stuff. So I just started to put a bunch of things on and without really understanding, number one, where, how I feel really felt about these theories and practices, how I really felt about these situations. I just put them on and spouted them out because I felt deprived of that, the knowledge before, and I wanted to make up lost time very misguided, completely misguided, but not totally unrelatable because at the end of the day, like who doesn't go through a period where they want to discover themselves? In many ways, college is that, is that point for people. When, when someone, even if they don't go to college, but when someone moves away completely across their country or moves to a completely new town, there's a part of you that puts on a new, like wants to discover something else about yourself. And everybody really wants to kind of find out who they are in this new space. Um, And sometimes it can look like, it can, it can look like you're doing too much, right? When you're trying to embrace who you, you're trying to find out who you are, you kind of tell yourself who you are, and then you just act like what you always thought that that person was, but it's not authentic because you have no, you've not spent any real time with yourself or with this new world that you're trying to get accustomed to, to really kind of unpack what it is that you think you want to embrace and those things that you need to really understand, um, just generally speaking. And then you recognize that 
you know, you're not a monolith. The, the, the black folks aren't a monolith in my case. Yet I was kind of acting as if this was blackness. And to be honest with you, not only was I putting on blackness and wearing it and, and just putting too much on without understanding, not too much on, that sounds weird, but wearing it without understanding what I was doing. Um, I also began to judge other black people for not going as hard as I went which I think that's just a side effect of you just not being comfortable with you. And, and of course I was not comfortable with myself. And I only realized how weird I was being and how uncomfortable I was until I started to recognize it in my senior year. But like, I really got it once I moved and I started my internship in Syracuse. Um, because they're just, I was trying to survive. Like it wasn't about who could, the, putting on blackness and acting as, as, you know, super ultra pro pro black wasn't putting food on my table. And it certainly wasn't helping me in the community. Like me spouting rhetoric did not equate to action in the community. And again, I've always worked in the community always, even in, even, even in high school, I worked in the community in some way or fashion. And so it was after I left college that I began to realize, okay, baby, well, you're going to have to figure out what's actionable in this. What do you really believe? And how can you take what you're believing and help that influence what you want to do, the work that you want to do in the community? Because baby, yes, it's important for you to understand your heritage. It's important to understand the things that you weren't taught, learn the things that you weren't taught in school get access to the information that you felt like you didn't have access to, but there's, you got to bring that stuff down to earth, baby. And black people aren't a monolith. And I think, still think, even though I got that understanding, I still think it took me like two years into living here in Baltimore before I really understood it. I, before I really understood it. And it took me moving to a predominantly black city and meeting a myriad black people, like a, a, a it just took me settling into myself and then meeting other people who were settled into themselves or settling to recognize that, oh, okay, I can, I can, I can take the time to figure out who the heck I am, who I want to be. I can take that time and there's nothing wrong with that. And there's also nothing wrong with who you are. Ultimately, I was going to say something else, but no, all roads come back to there's nothing wrong with who you are. Even if that means that you recognize you still have work to do, that you're working, it's perfectly fine. And so anyway, so, but in putting on all that blackness and, and, and all that studying I did in college, there was a lot of things that I missed. Specifically, because I, you know, I gravitated toward the Black Panther movement, I think, lar- not largely because, but it didn't. It certainly helped me kind of live there because Huey Newton was from Monroe, Monroe, Louisiana, and daddy's daddy's from Monroe. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then I started to, I started to recognize the Southern connection that a lot of Black Panther leaders had. Um, And I was not silly enough to think that the, that the work that SELC and SNCC were doing was null and void. I just didn't think it was as effective, fullness of time, as effective as the Black Panthers and the fullness of time. At the time, you understand that it took, it took all of that, and it's still taking all of that, all of those approaches, even now to keep pushing us forward, keep pushing us further. Um, and then coalition building, coalition building. I missed that how important coalition building is, especially. If you are coming up against a powerful entity, there's power in uniting, um, which is the oldest, simplest uh, principle in the world. But it's just, I don't know why I missed it, apart from I was just too busy trying to absorb information without properly processing it, that of course I missed it. Um, And so anyway, so I missed that whole piece about... um, how it took all of them to kind of move in their own specific way. Coalition building was important and that how woefully unprepared the leaders of the civil rights movement, the leaders in the Black Panther movement, and indeed just the leaders in the 60s and the movements that they were moving, how woefully unprepared they were for the lengths to which, but specifically about the Panthers, 
because we all know about COINTELPRO and, and the links that Hoover went to to crush any gains that they made. And I mean, that's what this film was about, ultimately. Um, the betrayal and execution of Fred Hampton. I mean, that's, that's the, actually, let me pause. It's actually not about that. That's a vehicle. That's a vehicle, <laughs> a plot vehicle, a plot device for advancing the story of William O'Neill, but we'll get there. Um, but anyway, um, but how woefully unprepared or how, yeah, how woefully unprepared they were to fight the government and the lengths that the U.S. government would go to undermine all of their efforts, even if it meant totally underlying, totally, um, undermining the the general efforts of improving the health outcomes of all their citizens. Because certainly that's what the Panthers were working on. Certainly that's what these, a lot of these leaders in the sixties were trying to do improving health outcomes by giving poor people access to transportation, which equaled access to better jobs, jobs, which equaled more money in the economy so that they could spend on things, access to the same access to all of the same department stores, theaters, grocery stores, whatever, because at the end of the day, that's pumping the economy, you fool. Healthy babies, bringing up healthy babies who would ultimately be in your workforce, dummy, and help drive the economy, you, the economy, you fool. But anyway, but, but racism is, is, makes you real dumb and makes you do dumb things. Um, and pe- racism and capitalism make you dumb and make you do dumb things to keep what you think is your power. And so anyway, so yeah, but they were just as far as brilliant as a lot of those leaders were and the initiatives that they put in place. Nobody can deny the school, the free school lunch program. Nobody can do de- free breakfast. Nobody can deny that. Um, and for all the talk about people who don't want to be social or who, who don't want anything to do with socialism, I just think that's just dumb, dumb people talking and you spitting out, you spitting out what somebody else said and you not even having a relationship with the information that you're spitting out. You, you being like me in college, I had no relationship, real relationship with the information. I was just, I knew it and I turned around and I spit it out without understanding it. Right. It's like what, what. People in faith are taught. You need to have a relationship with the material. You need to understand it for yourself. Turn it around in your own head so that you can process that thing. But we got a lot of fools out here who just spout things um, and refuse to unlearn that behavior. Thank God that's no longer me. But um, but yeah, so like a lot of the practices that we do uh, that we do today are very socialism. It's very socialist in, in practice, but. We don't see it that way. Anyway, so yeah, so I missed a lot of stuff, including like the coalition building is a really big thing that I missed, which is something that King was trying to do with the Poor People's Campaign um, and certainly something that Fred Hampton was trying to do with his Rainbow Coalition, which, by the way, didn't realize that that was not coined by Jesse Jackson, that it was coined by Fred Hampton. Um, anyway, so, but yeah, it's in the fullness of time after looking into all of this stuff and, and then coming back and, and trying to develop a relationship with the information and processing it. Yeah. I just come back to, they just were totally unprepared for as prepared as, as smart and as brilliant as they were, they were totally unprepared for the divisiveness of the U.S. government, and for for folks who are all about law and order, they were very disorderly, very engaged in very illegal practices, all for the benefit of thwarting what they thought to be anarchists. But again, they weren't even. They weren't even thinking, and it's and, and and anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, so, of course, with you know rediscovering the information that I 
that I um, learned in college and then really processing it and then really thinking about the information. Um, of course, this caught my eye. And I remember when I first heard about this movie being made and it was sometime mid last year, mid to early 2020. And I remember like other people having feelings that Daniel Kaluuya was playing Fred Hampton. And it was probably more than mid 2020. It was probably the end of 2019, if I'm honest. It's probably 2019 where I first heard it, where I first heard about it. And I remember that folks were not excited about him. It was actually probably 2018, if I'm honest. Because he was coming off of the, the high from um, the high from um, Black Panther. <laughs> the high from Black Panther was coming down a little bit. And people were getting other gigs. And yeah, people were getting other gigs. And there were rumors that he was going to play Fred Hampton. And I remember, I, again, I talk about my college experience a lot. I befriended a lot of uh, kids from Chicago and I'm still friends with a few of them to this day. And one of my friends, um, from college were on Twitter. Um, we, we follow each other on Twitter and I guess we have a lot, some mutuals in common, um, or at least Twitter mutuals on com- in common. So, you know, our black Twitters kind of look similar. And so on our feed, it was a bunch of it was a bunch of people talking about Mm-mm, this ain't going that dog ain't gonna hunt. Um, I'm not here for Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton, um, and I wasn't initially either. After having seen this film, Daniel Kaluuya, you cannot deny that Daniel Kaluuya is a great actor. This accent wasn't it for me. It was not it for me. I I appreciate his effort. I appreciate it. It was just hollow and I can't quite wrap my brain around what it's missing. Even recognizing that the Chicago accent and a lot of accents from the 60s are not, they're different today, right? Because accents change. Accents change with people moving in, you moving away, time, what's in fashion. You know, it's fashionable to say certain things a certain way. It's, it changes for a, a whole number of different reasons. So I recognize that there aren't a ton of people who speak exactly like Fred Hampton has you hear Fred Hampton doing in the archives. And if you're honest, like if you go back in the archives in any country, any country, I guarantee you the way people speak in the 60s is not it it sounds a little stilted and very different than the way people speak in your country and your community now. It just does, because for all the reasons I just mentioned. And so anyway, his, his accent doesn't totally exist now, but it felt like it wasn't round enough. Like it felt like if he was trying to draw a perfect circle, like he's 85% of the way to that perfect circle. It's just that remaining, that remaining 15 is a stick in my crawl, but you get over it. You get over it. Um, Cause shoot, I imagine my voice and diction sometimes is grating for people. But anyway, you get over it. Um, and the other thing that I was not prepared for, so his accent was thro- through me, but I got over it. The other thing that I was not prepared for was not understanding what the movie wanted me to think about William O'Neill. Because in parts, like, I don't... Of course, this movie is about William O'Neill and him, his march to betraying, to befriending, betraying, and then ultimately setting up for murder, Chairman Fred Hampton. But I felt like we didn't get enough backstory for me to understand him. And we didn't get enough leading up to his betrayal for me to feel sorry for him. And I even, because I just wanted more information, I even looked up the documentary, the Eyes on the Prize documentary, the PBS documentary. Um, 
and I, I, I got a more round picture, but it, even then I'm just like, what was this movie for? And I have thoughts. Um, I ultimately enjoyed this film. And I'm trying to figure out why is it hard for me to out and out say that I enjoyed this film? Is it because I don't like the subject matter or, and I'm forgetting about the acting? Is that why it is? And I I don't know the answer to that question yet. And hopefully by the end of this episode, I will have the answer to that question, but I don't have it yet. I know the acting was good. The Keith Stanfield was good. I just, Dominique Fishback, of course she was good. I just, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to say out and out that I like this movie um, because I have so many emotions around it. So I think what I'll do is I'll just talk about this thing in two parts. Um, The first part I'll be giving um, the particulars about the film. Um, I'll be giving, yeah, the particulars as I know them about the film. Then I'll be talking about, I'll split the movie. It's two hours and six minutes, but I'll split it up in before Fred went to, to prison and after Fred went to prison. So part one is the particulars and then before Fred went to prison. And then part two is after Fred went to prison and then something like an epilogue will be me talking about um, the PBS documentary Eyes on the Prize. Two. It's Eyes on the Prize 2, by the way, um, where the real William um, O'Neill was featured. Anyway, so stick around for part one. Okay, so let me dig into the particulars. This film was released um, this month on the 12th, February 12th of this year. Um, It was directed by Shaka King, cinematography by Sean Bobbitt, Producers Shaka King, Ryan Coogler, Charles King, Sev Ohanian, um, and the screenplay was by Shaka King and William Burson. Um, I will tell you that the cinematography was pretty great. I cannot deny that. Um, I even think the dialogue was pretty good, and I think the story itself was fine. I'm Like I said, I'm just still trying to wrap my brain around why exactly it's hard for me to say that I love this movie. Um, anyway, so I'll give you the lead characters. Um, Daniel Kaluuya playing Fred Hampton, Lakeith Sanfield playing William O'Neill, Dominic Fishback playing Deborah Johnson, who is um, Fred Hampton's significant other and the mother of Fred Hampton Jr., Fred Hampton's son. Um, and then Jesse Plemons, who plays Roy Mitchell. Roy Mitchell is William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Sanfield, William O'Neill's ha- FBI handler. Um, yeah, um, so let me, what can I say? So I already, let me, let me just tell you some things. Um, so I already told you, I'll I'll tell you what I learned. So I, like, I, I think I already mentioned it, but I can't remember. Um, I learned that Jesse Jackson didn't coin the phrase Rainbow Coalition. Fred Hampton did. Um... I learned that Bill O'Neill continued to serve as an informant after the death of Fred Hampton and was uh, still a part of the Black Panthers after Fred Hampton's death. Um, I learned that Bill O'Neill, William O'Neill, they call him Bill in the film, but William O'Neill, I'm just I'm telling you this right off the bat, from start to finish, William O'Neill's whole purpose for being an FBI informant was to avoid jail time. That's it. Like, you need to know that. William O'Neill's whole purpose for being an informant was to avoid jail time. Now, put a pin in that because when I talk about Eyes on the Prize in the next segment... I'm going to mention something. You haven't seen Eyes on the Prize 2. I keep saying Eyes on the Prize, but it's Eyes on the Prize 2. If you haven't seen that, you don't know what I'm talking about. So I will share those in this in the next segment. But anyway, put a pin in it. Um, I also learned that 
there was, while there were chapters all over the country and even across the globe, Black Panther chapters um, and leaders from those chapters, there wasn't a ton, there was, it was organization, but because of what the FBI was doing, there was a lot of dissension among the ranks and there was a lot of isolation sometimes um, from one chapter to the next. Um, and one of these days I'm going to have a conversation with my church member who is a former Panther. She was, I don't know that there was an office, a Panther office in Baltimore, but there probably was. Watch, there probably was a Panther office in Baltimore and one in DC. And I just remember her telling me that, yeah, when she was with the Panthers, she would take this back route and it was US-1. She would take US-1 to get between DC and, um, DC and Baltimore because it was easier for her to get in and out of the cities, specifically DC, because apparently there was a lot of activity happening in DC, but it was easy for her to get in and out off one than it was easier than on 95 because 95 was just hot. Uh, Anyway, um, but yeah, I just, I want to, that's, see, that's the digging that I wish I would have done when I was younger, but I was just too self-absorbed to really dig into that. But I really want to understand more about what it was like when the FBI was really trying to sow and successfully sowing dissension. Um, but nevertheless, so like, I, you know, we're, we're seeing here that coalition building was really something that Fred wanted to do. And even in the first half, you see it right off the bat that Fred right away tries to build coalition with other, other movements across this, the city of Chicago, because all of the, the people that he was working with were organizing to protect their people against crooked police at, you know, Chicago PD at the time and the leadership of, of Chicago. So, that's not necessarily something that I caught when I was looking, but it's also not necessarily something that was prominent in the literature that I was reading, the coalition building piece. Again, it's possible, it's totally possible that I just missed it. So anyway, those are a few things that I learned. Um, what I ultimately did not like, even though I knew what I was getting into, what I ultimately did not like about this film is that it was more about William O'Neill than I wanted it to be. Even though I knew it was about William O'Neill, I didn't want it to be about William O'Neill. I wanted it to be about Fred Hampton. That's what I wanted. Even I had gotten over the accent. Mid, mid-film, I had gotten over the accent. I was fine with it. Um, I just wanted it to be more about William O'Neill because it, it, it was pitiful. The story is pitiful, y'all. The story is pitiful. Really pitiful, but anyway, we'll, I'll, I'll hasten on. So that's ultimately, oh, and I do not like the fact that they tried to humanize Bill's handler. Bill, William O'Neill, William O'Neill's handler. I don't like that they tried to humanize him. And I'm not even going to spend too much time on that. But that, that, that frustrated me greatly. Frustrated me to no end. Um, because, well, I'll just go into it, but it frustrated me to no end. So anyway, first half of the film, first hour and six minutes, um, we meet Fred and Bill, William O'Neill. Uh, Fred is a burgeoning leader who needs refining. These are my notes. Um, Bill is a two-bit hustler who needs direction. As Fred's profile raises and he gets help refining his leadership he, but with, from Deborah Johnson, who is, becomes his significant other, um, he also begins to unite poor whites, blacks from gangs, pause. I forgot what they called the gang in the movie, but the gang in real life was the Blackstone Disciples. Look up the history of gangs in the United States for all the ways that we like to talk about them. They all had very rich and very practical reasons for organizing, many of them. Um, the ones that were larger and prolific. I'm not saying that they were perfect. I'm not saying that they didn't do illegal things. I'm just saying that they weren't all just out to get theirs. Um, anyway, so gangs and um, Puerto Ricans, specifically here, the Puerto Ricans and the whites and the gangs were, um, or the poor whites were um, prominent, prominently featured as groups that Fred was trying to 
unite to build a coalition, the Rainbow Coalition. Meanwhile, um, Wild Bill, as is the the Panthers dub him, the moniker that the Panthers give him. I think Fred gave gave him that moniker. Uh, Anyway, Wild Bill is recruited recruited by the feds to get close to Fred because William O'Neill stole a car, perpetrated an FBI officer, stole stole a car, got arrested, and the and because he was black, it's as simple as this, because he was black and because he had a record, the FBI knew that they could squeeze him to do whatever they wanted him to do because he didn't want to go to he didn't want to go to prison. And in fact, William O'Neill did exactly what uh, and again, William O'Neill was young. We need to know this. William O'Neill, like Fred Hampton, was super young. Different paths, but they were both super young. And so William O'Neill, not wanting to go to prison, decided he wanted to cooperate with the feds. So, um, and he's also young and impressionable too. Like he's a knucklehead, but he's also an impressionable knucklehead. And so his handler in, in recruiting, in recruiting Bill, Bill believes the hype that his handler, who's older than him, is played older than him, um, gives him that the Black Panthers are just like the, the KKK. Two sides of the same, different sides of the same coin, which is the dumbest line of logic ever. And all you need to do is just think on that thing. And I'm not even going to defend why that's stupid. And if you think the Panthers or Black Lives Matter, for that matter, are anything like the Proud Boys and white supremacist groups, you shouldn't be listening to this show, like at all. Anyway, not even going to go into why that's just a dumb thought um, and, and dangerous, too. Anyway, so but Wild Bill's handler, um, you know, tells him that, you know, you got to you got to Fred Hampton is dangerous. So you got to get close and expose him, um, get close to him, and expose him. Because you got to help take down the Panthers because they're just as radical and dangerous and hateful as the Klan. And so while Bill begins to immerse himself in the Panther culture and, you know, begins to to play the part, play the part of a Panther, Um, just like a hood that's trying to be refined. But nevertheless, uh, somebody who's who's a part of the cause. Um, meanwhile, the FBI sends, um, by the way, he has to duck a lot of suspicion that he is, he's actually a fed, even though he is, he is a fed. Um, he has to do a lot of work to conceal his identity because one of the other things that I remember from my studies of the Panthers is that they were super paranoid and for good reason, super paranoid and for good reason, because the FBI was doing stuff like this which is portrayed in the film, the FBI would literally write letters as if they were a leader of, let's say, the Detroit office of the, uh, of, uh, the Black Panther Movement uh, Party. Or, or a, a, in this instance, it was a gang member. Like, no, they wrote the letter as if they were Fred Hampton talking about the leader of the Blackstone Disciples and sent it to the leader of the, or God made sure that it got in the hands of the Blackstone Disciples. And of course he would be mad because Fred Hampton was saying all kinds of stuff. According in this letter, the FBI had Fred Hampton because they were perpetrating Fred Hampton, say all these foolish things, disrespectful things about the Blackstone Rangers. And then they send it to um, the leader. And of course, like, Back then, it's, it's as if somebody took over your, your Twitter account or any of your social media accounts or sent an email from your email or sent a text from your phone. Um, it's hard to prove that that wasn't you. Somebody writes a letter in your name, unless you know their handwriting, it's hard to know that that's not them. And so this is what, you know, some of the tactics, just one of the small ways that the FBI tried to sow dissension among the groups. And so in this instance, the FBI has penned this letter under, uh, uh, under Fred Hampton's name and it's sent it to the leader of the Blackstone Disciples. And then, um, or the Blackstone Rangers, right? And then Fred goes to recruit 
to have a you know a conversation with the Blackstone Rangers to try to recruit them for his coalition, and the leader says, uh-uh, 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 player, because you were saying all of this stuff. You were saying all of this, so now you're all in my face? What, you didn't write this letter now? This, this wasn't you? And then, of course, Fred spent some time trying to defend himself. No, that wasn't me. Why would I be here if, if I needed you? Why would I talk about you and then come and get you to be on my side? Like, wouldn't I know that that would come out? Like, that's foolish. And so, in, ultimately, I don't think that the Blackstone Rangers partnered with Fred, but he understood what was happening. I think there was like a loose affiliation because they were still a little bit they were still a little bit standoffish and they didn't really trust each other. But the same sort of thing was happening among the leaders. The FBI was notorious for writing letters as uh, prominent Panther leaders talking about other prominent Panther leaders. But none of those folks talked about each other. And it was hard to believe what was real and what was fake. That was the point. That was the whole point. So anyway, um, so we see that. And then and then um, Wild Bill fashions himself as a person or his self as a personal driver of Fred and gets even closer to him. Right. Fred is distrustful of him at first, but he gets closer to him because uh, Wild Bill proves himself time and time again. He proves himself. He, he gains his trust so much so that. Um, while Bill is promoted to security captain for the Chicago chapter of um, the Black Panther Party when Fred is sentenced to prison on bogus charges. The bogus charges that Fred was sentenced to was for stealing the equivalent of $70 in ice cream. And he was brought up on federal charges for that and went to jail. Like, no, went to prison for stealing ice cream. Which, of course, he didn't steal. But he went to prison for like three years off that. And so in his absence, Wild Bill is promoted to security captain. And there's a moment, there's a moment um, here where we're introduced to him again as the security captain. And we see that there's, you know, more foolishness happening. And there's a scene where he meets with the security captain from (coughs) some excuse me, some northern state. I think it was like Connecticut or something like that. And he comes across this conversation where these folks, the the person, these people from the, the Connecticut chapter, one of the Connecticut chapters of the Panther Party, was talking about how they killed an informant. Literally, all the nasty, dastardly things that they did to that informant. Meanwhile, Bill's sweating bullets because he himself is an informant and he doesn't want to lose his life. And so anyway, so he, of course, he straightens himself up and then like a true snake, he plays the part again. And he's like, yeah, I would have done worse to him. You know what I'm saying? I would have did this, that and the third to him. And anyway, after that incident, he runs, hightails it right back to his handler. And long story short, his handler acts like he don't know what old dude is talking about. And then he goes back to his superior and gets answers. Long story short, the person that was bragging about killing someone was like Bill, an FBI informant who actually killed someone who was innocent and blamed him, the person that he killed for being an FBI informant. Bad business, bad business. Yet even still, Bill remains in his role as an info, as an informer. Stays in there anyway. First reason why I don't, that was the first time that, excuse me, that I acknowledged to myself, I don't feel sorry for the circumstance that you're in. You're still in it. And so anyway, um, so while, um, while Fred is in prison, the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party is basically sitting ducks to the Chicago PD and the Chicago PD begin to harass them, um, which is practice, common practice when, when um, you know, when you take the leader, of course, you want to try to dismantle the whole organization. And so anyway, so 
they're basically sitting ducks. And so the end of the first half, Fred is in jail. There is a shootout between Chicago PD and a couple of Panthers in um, the Chicago office. And now we are to believe, this film will have you believe that William O'Neill was actually in the building when the shootout occurred and then slipped away um, before the things got real. And he slipped away and no other Panther understood or were savvy enough to recognize that how convenient it was, even the ones that got shot. Because in this, in this segment, we see two people, two people a woman and a, and a man, get shot. They put Deborah Johnson out of the, the building because they knew what was about to happen. And so they begin this shootout, and then they can't sustain the, up the barrage of bullets, so they drop the white flag. Meanwhile, Bill O'Neill leaves out the back door and drives off. And I'm like, is this, are y'all for real? Did this really happen? Or is this just for drama? For the is is you know is this just for the movie? I don't know, and it's not talked about again. No other nobody else brings it up. Like Bill, where were you? You were in the building, and then you weren't in the building. What's up? Anyway, so at the culmination of this bad this gunfight, though, um, they arrest and beat up um, the people that were a part of the gunfight because officers were hit too, and so to justify you know, in their rage, they beat up, uh, ridiculously beat up the people who were shooting because that's what is justifiable, I guess, to police officers that is totally fine to take the law into your own hands and beat up other people. But I'm not having that conversation because we know that's not the, that's not what it should be. Even though that some police officers think that today. Um, anyway, so they, Take those two Panthers into custody, beat, beat the tail, beat, just beat the dust off of them. And then, um, according to this movie, and also, now this is what I do know, according to um, Panthers, Panther members at the time, um, the Chicago PD burned the building down. They set it ablaze and burned it up. And so that ends the first half of the film. And, and I said 106, but it's actually 103. Um, 103 minutes into the film, this is what happened. And this is the end of act of the first half of the film. Okay, and so now to the second half of the film. Bill tries to quit after he walks away from the gun battle and the subsequent bombing of or setting a blaze of the Chicago office, Bill tries to quit, but is threatened by his agent to stay. Um, I almost feel sorry for him in this moment, but I remember that the reason why he was threatened is because he still got jail time on him. So he ultimately, again, William O'Neill does not want to go to prison. The whole impetus for him becoming a rat is that he doesn't want to go to prison. I'm sure that there would be, at this point, that there would be other things waiting for him now because he's a prominent leader. But let's not forget, this guy didn't want to go to prison and this is why he became an informant. So he stays and he helps rebuild the Chicago headquarters. We learn that, that Deborah is pregnant. Um, and Fred still doesn't know. Fred is released and resumes his work. And then he learns that he's going to be a father. And there's this push and pull between Deborah and Fred because her, while she's still very gung-ho about what the work that they're doing, now she's becoming aware of how fragile life is because she herself is carrying a life. And she wants the child to have a father. And so now she's a little bit less cavalier or she's less okay with how cavalier Fred is um, about saying that he wants to die for the people. He wants to die for the movement. If that's what, ha- what it comes to. But anyway, um, so Fred's leadership and example attracts now the Blackstone Rangers 
um, to help arm them at least. Again, they're not necessarily working to get, they're co- co- cooperating together. They're not necessarily joined up together, but they're definitely cooperating. So anyway, um, the police and the FBI begin to target the Panthers even harder now. Um, and one by one, Panthers are being targeted and killed, not jailed anymore. They're being targeted and killed. Um, and Bill's handler shows up um, to a rally, one of Fred's first rallies, um, for the benefit of intimidating Bill to make sure that he does what he needs him to do. Again, you want to feel sorry for William, but then you remember, for as conflicted as he feels, you are still an informant. And you are still an informant because you don't want to go to jail. So we're just going to put in that there. Um, and so now the F- we learn the FBI has a new approach. A dead panther is better than a jailed one. For all the reasons why we found, we know that... Um, was it Eldridge Cleaver? Who wrote Soul on, Soul on Ice? See, this is wish I, why I, had, I wish I had a co-host. Who wrote Soul on Ice? Let me Google it. Soul on Ice. Soul on... Oh, Jesus... Soul on Ice. Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver rolled Soul on Ice. So, oh girl, this is, do you know that there's a documentary called Soul on Ice, Past, Present, and Future? It's about hockey. Of course, there's a documentary about a black hockey player called Soul on Ice because you just cannot have uh, an original title it was just out there for the making and oh by the way 94 percent of google users like it and it has an 8.2 out of 10 off imdb shoot i might have to watch this anyway but it's by elger cleaver um anyway but like there were there were plenty examples oh huey newton is the biggest example of someone who was put in prison and then got out and was his notoriety and fame was even bigger than before like he was even able to direct things from prison and so that's why the FBI changed their approach. A dead panther is the only good panther from their perspective. Um, so Hoover puts pressure in this film. Oh, Hoover is played by um, Charlie. No, not Charlie Sheen. Who's Charlie Sheen's daddy? Martin Sheen. Um, Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover is played by Martin Sheen. And I don't know how I feel about this depiction. I don't know how I feel about it. He's just, I don't know how I feel about it. Anyway, um, Hoover puts pressure on Bill's handler to get more out of Bill. Bill records Fred in a trap talking about blowing up a federal building, even though he didn't quite talk about blowing it up. Certainly Bill talked about that and Fred told him, I don't know you crazy. They're going to get us for sure. So I don't know how that would implicate Fred, but whatever. And it's at this point where they make it seem like Bill just kind of left the Panthers and kind of went off to try to do his own thing. And so anyway, Bill thinks that he's free. So Bill and his handler actually think that he's free. Um, So they, you know, they share the, they share the um, tape, the recording with the FBI and Hoover's like, yeah, I got it, but uh, that's not good enough anymore. I'm changing my strategy. Um, His handler goes to see Hoover thinking that, you know, they got got Fred and he's finally gonna go to jail. And again, Hoover's like, yeah, 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 he's going to jail again, but that's not good enough. I don't want him to make it there. Y'all need to do what you need to do. Lean on Bill to do more. Um, and again, and again, at this point, Fred is going to go back to prison for five years this time, um, off of a a probation violation or something like that. So anyway, so two things are happening at once. So Bill is being told by his handler, you need to do more. And oh, by the way, remember, you can go to prison if you don't do this. That's it. You going to prison. If you don't do this, if you don't stitch Fred up. You going to prison. Meanwhile, the news about Fred going back to prison off this bogus probation uh, violation um, has reached headquarters 
and everybody's trying to convince uh, Fred to go to Algeria, to escape to Algeria like a lot of Panthers have done, or to go to different um, Panther-friendly and brown countries. Um, But Fred refuses. So, um, which is essentially, I mean, is probably the reason he, he, him not going to escaping to Algeria is probably the reason why he was a sitting duck for what was about to happen, which was Bill's handler pushes him to draw a blueprint of Panther headquarters or Fred's home. Um, and then not only that, Fred, uh, Bill does it with very little effort. Bill does it. Um, and not only that, so Bill thinks he's done, but then he goes to a bar and then another black informant played by um, Rel, who's good. Rel is from Chicago. What's Rel's name? What's Rel's real? I don't remember. Anyway, the Rel, uh, the comedian Rel, who is from Chicago, plays a pimp. He looks like a pimp. And anyway, he slips him something to essentially knock Fred out so that he could be asleep for what's about to come. And the guy that Rel is playing doesn't tell Bill what's about to happen to Fred, but you can put two and two together. Something bad is about to happen to Fred. And anyway, so at first, again, Bill acts like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. But sure enough, because because Bill does not want to go to prison, He goes over, he meets up at Fred's home and they're eating. And in this movie, I don't know if this is true, but in this movie, the the drug that Bill was given, he slips it into Fred's drink after he offers to get uh, Fred a refill, the snake. Anyway, and so Fred drinks the refill that's been drugged. He's drugged. Falls asleep and later that night, Fred is killed or later that morning, you know, into the night. And now it's wee hours in the morning, four in the morning. The police raid Fred Hampton's home with his, with Deborah Johnson, who is pregnant, laid up next to him and other Panthers in the apartment. They shoot it up and Fred Hampton um, and one other Panther are killed. There were 99 shots. There were a hundred shots fired into that apartment and there was one retaliatory shot fired out to the police one Deborah survives of course and then as you know so does their unborn child at the time which was uh Fred Hampton Jr. um no one is brought up on charges not initially um, Bill continues, as I mentioned, and Bill continues to be an informant and member of the Panthers for several years after this. Several years after this. Pausing just real quickly, what we know is that um, the mother of the young Panther that was killed with Fred Hampton and Deborah Johnson sued Chicago PD. Uh, I think in civil court and they sued him for like 14 million and actually won 1.4 million, I think. So pennies as compared to what they were suing for and actually pennies in compared to the people that they lost. People that they, were, they both lost were invaluable. There's no price of money for Fred Hampton and the, and the young man whose life was taken. You, there's not enough money to replace those, those lives lost. But nevertheless, they won their civil court, their civil case, but it took many years. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, in 89, I think, um, Bill does a PBS special where he interviews about his role in Fred's death. And in the interview, the thing that strikes me the most is if I thought I held out any hope after having watched this film, because the film essentially ends, it ends with Fred being uh, being murdered. And then it gives the recap of, you know, how long uh, Bill stayed in the FBI. And, you know, 
Yeah, basically how long he stayed in the FBI as an informant and how long he was attached to the to the Panthers. And anyway, um, so in the interview, I thought if there was any hope that there would be something redeeming, a redeeming quality about him, it's gone. Now, mind you, in the movie, they do show parts of that interview. The very first, the opening of it is basically asking... Uh, excuse me, asking, um, Bill, excuse me, Bill a question about his, to explain his time as an informant with the Panthers and he doesn't explain it. Um, but it's actually not the documentary. It's actually, it's actually Lakeith Stansfield playing William O'Neill in, you know, in the PBS documentary. But in the end, you actually do see William O'Neill saying basically as an outtake of the interview, um, he, the, I think the interviewer asked, just as an aside, how do you think, how do you want people to remember you or to perceive you? And Bill says in the documentary, well, I'll, I'll just let the documentary speak for itself. And that's, that's how I'm going to feel about it. That's where I'm going to leave it. Um, At the, and the movie shares that um, what we don't know in the documentary is that after the documentary, so William did the documentary, but after it premiered, the night it premiered, he took his own life. And you want to assign meaning to that, right? That he was remorseful for everything that he did. And so that's why he took his life. I don't know if there was a note. I think that, I think people thinking that is you wanting to, to, to console yourself for the, you know, take it as a, as a him paying his penance for the things that he did against the Panthers, against setting up Fred to be murdered. But I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of him taking his own life years a decade or more after the events of the 60s. I don't know what to make of that. And I think, I think having watched that documentary, I think that ultimately leads me back to whether or not I like this film or not. Because this film is about an FBI informant. And it's not uplifting like Donnie Brasco, like that was meant to uplift him to, to, you know, it's a guy who's being duplicitous, but he's trying to take down a powerful mob who they're nasty, underhanded people. They do terrible things. And he did what he had to do. This isn't that situation. William O'Neill became an FBI informant because he got caught committing grand larceny, grand theft auto or whatever, and wanted to avoid jail time and then remained an informant for years because he wanted to avoid jail time. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't want to avoid jail time too. I would, but I wouldn't want to avoid jail time more than, than I would not want to be a party of murdering people. Because for whatever, <clears throat> for whatever Bill believed in the beginning from his handler that the KKK and the Black Panthers were the exact same, he knew that that wasn't true as he got to know Fred, as he got to understand the movement better. When he was rebuilding Panther headquarters in Chicago. Like all of that went out the window. So I just... I don't know why this movie needed to be made because it wasn't about Fred. It wasn't about his work. And I don't want to fantasize or, or glorify the fact that Fred was only 21 years old. It's a shame that he died at 21. But what we know is that a lot of leaders are young because they have that confidence of youth that I'm going to be the one I'm going to do something to change this environment. And then you got older people propping them up and giving them resources too, because they have some wisdom behind them. But nevertheless, because they're propped up, they're sitting, they're sitting ducks. They're sitting ducks. 
which is not to say that if you're young, don't stick your neck out. It's just the consequence of you sticking your neck out is that somebody would want to chop it off. And you just got you just got to know that. Don't be naive about it, but you just got to know that. And I don't think that Fred Hampton was naive. The way he was talking, I don't think they were naive. I don't think he was naive at all. I just think, again, I don't know that they were totally prepared for the lengths that the FBI and the U.S. government would go to to crush them. Or maybe they were. Maybe they were aware. And they did it anyway because the cause was greater than them. And maybe in my selfishness, I just can't imagine someone putting themselves so far last, putting, putting anything before their life, apart from a child, their like blood relative. And maybe that's something that I got to get over. But yeah, this movie, I just don't know why it needed to be made from this perspective. Like, what am I supposed to get? Because it, you, you're not supposed to talk ill of the dead. But what this guy did was anything but good. I, there's no redemption here. So what is the purpose of this film? Like, just make it about Fred and make the vehicle for the work. Make the vehicle for the story of Fred Hampton, William O'Neill. I don't know why this film had to be made this way. I'm not knocking the screenplay itself. The story was fine. The acting was great. The accents were... And that's the other thing. Bill O'Neill didn't have no accent. Lakeith Stanfield didn't have an accent. Not much of one. Not a Chicago accent. And he's supposed to be from Chicago. So we have two... Anyway, I'm quibbling at this point. I don't think I like this movie. I don't think I like this movie because it's not about the acting. It's about this story. I don't know why it needed to be told. This particular story, I don't know why it needed to be told. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's like you're using Deborah and Fred Hampton Jr., but they're just a prop for your story. Like, I hope that the Hampton house gets all the money that they were trying to raise to restore it and for upkeep. I hope they get all the dollars. Because I don't know what else to, I don't know how to make sense of this film in my spirit. And again, I am wholly coming down on the side that I don't like this film simply because of the story itself. I don't know why it needed to be told. I don't feel remorse for William O'Neill or anybody who was an informant. Because what you were doing was you made a decision that you were going to undermine the good work that they were, that the Panthers were trying to do. Yes, they were flawed. Yes, they were flawed. Yes, they were naive. Yes, they were easily, well, not easily manipulated, but they were flawed and a little naive, but they had great principles that were working in practice, not in theory, in practice. And you infiltrated them. And and not only that, yes, you were used. But in this context, he didn't want to go to jail. He didn't want to go to prison. And I know that that wasn't a no healthy place for anybody to be. But because he didn't want to go to prison, he ended up killing two, pe- two people. He helped to kill two people, probably more, because of his actions. We know that other informants were murdered. We don't know if, if they were actually informants or not, or if they were more like that, that um, thing that happened in... Um, Connecticut, where it was the informant that killed somebody that was completely blameless, that was completely not an informant. But to cover his own tracks, he killed someone. You know what I mean? It's like, what are we doing here? Why, do, why did this story need to be told? <sighs> anyway, so I'm just going to leave it there. Um, and again, I, I'm totally open to the idea that I feel the way I do because of the information that I studied in college and then poured over again when I really wanted to know it for myself, understand it and with my new eyes, basically, like my attachment to the Black Panthers. I think that's, I know that's why I feel the way I do, but I'm not the only one. So anyway, I'd love to hear it. If you have a different take on this, if you didn't have a close relationship with the Panthers globally or whatever, because again, there were Panther chapters all over the globe, right? Um, 
maybe you don't, you're not as intimately aware of the Panthers as I am. And maybe you have a different take completely. Um, I would love to hear that because I just, I know mine is colored by my own experience. Um, and whether or not you, you like this film and why you liked it. Um, because I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm gonna be real upset if Lakeith Stansfield gets uh, an Academy Award for this. I'm gonna be real upset. I'm gonna get over it, but I'm gonna be real upset. Anyway, um, I'm gonna leave it there. Um, thank you so, 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 so much for listening. Um, I hope I wasn't too much of a drag. Um, if this wasn't your thing, and go listen to another one of my episodes that talks about Octavia Butler apparently because there was a um there's more emphasis on Octavia Butler right now some of y'all are going back and revisiting my um review of Dawn by Octavia Butler and let me just tell you I'm about to come up with some more episodes from of her uh, uh reviews of her books because I'm back on it I, I took a break for a minute because I was just doing other things but I've got some more books of hers that I want to review because that woman that woman anyway um so yeah, feel free to share this episode or any other episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening, rating this favorably, leaving me any messages. Um, I will read the positive ones. Um, thank you so much. If, if you're listening to this show, if this show is playing while you are completing a task, I appreciate you for doing that. You're only half listening. I still appreciate you for doing that because you literally could be using any other show to do that. So I thank you for using mine. Um, yeah, just thank you for allowing me to, for helping me continue to do this hobby that I do. Um, I hope you're having a good day. If you're not, I hope you will have a good day. Take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Take a break. You need it. Eat something good. Take care of your health. Until next time.